Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. What is the U.S. terror threat as troops withdraw from Afghanistan? Well, America's doorstep is very far away. There's no question that the turmoil and instability is going to cause problems. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Putting action behind ideas on mitigating climate change in San Diego. The California Climate Action Corps provides a great opportunity to actually put these ideas, all these ideas I've been learning about climate change, and actually do something about it. How a sewage bot is monitoring COVID infections on one local campus, and we'll tell you about a new Latinx playwright series. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Now that the Taliban has seized virtually full control of Afghanistan, the lingering threat of international terror is on the minds of many Americans. As the fractured nation begins to reshape itself under Taliban control, many questions remain over what dangers will be posed following the exit of U.S. armed forces from the region. Joining me with more is Eric Gartsky, a political scientist and the founding director of the Center for Peace and Security Studies at UCSD. Eric, welcome. Well, thank you so much. There's a lot of concern, as mentioned, over the threat of terrorism now that the Taliban has seized control of Afghanistan. Does their swift takeover of the country pose a significant threat to the United States? Well, my short answer would be no. There are real legitimate concerns about security, and Americans have reasons to be concerned. But uh, I think we can look at the facts and reassure folks that at least in this instance, reality is not as severe as they may fear. Does our departure from Afghanistan raise the risk of international terrorism in any way? It could potentially, but not for the United States, paradoxically. The way I'm starting to think about this thing is Afghanistan has become Vietnam 2.0. And so the analog would be to look back in history and ask ourselves, if there are enough parallels to our exit from Vietnam and the victory of the North Vietnamese communists, can we apply that and sort of draw some lessons from that? And I think we can. One of the first ones is that there were a lot of the same or very similar fears in the 1970s uh, when the U.S. exited Vietnam. And there was a similar cataclysmic collapse of the South Vietnamese Arvin forces, much like in Afghanistan today. So maybe the Taliban now turns around and starts carrying out terrorism around the world. But it's very unlikely. First of all, they weren't the ones that committed 9-11. They hosted 
Al-Qaeda. And there was sort of a business relationship between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So Al-Qaeda really is a problem. But for the most part, they've been destroyed and are a a vanishingly ineffective force in uh, certainly in Afghanistan and also in many other places. The Taliban didn't show any interest in carrying out terrorist acts abroad. And today they've got their hands full trying to reestablish their authority in Afghanistan. Leading national defense officials have warned of the possibility that terror cells could regroup within the country after the Taliban's takeover. How likely is that? I think it's very likely. It's not that the Taliban will be leading those efforts or that they will necessarily encourage them, but they will tolerate them. Uh, But paradoxically, the big problem of uh, terrorism originating from Afghanistan is not towards the United States. It's towards some of our chief uh, adversaries in the world. It's China and Russia. The Taliban will be attempting to secure international diplomatic legitimacy now that it holds power in Afghanistan. Do you think that that will motivate them to keep terrorist groups in check? I think that might be true in part. I think they're more practical domestic issues. It's not clear how global terrorism helps the Taliban's objective of cementing their leadership of Afghanistan right now. It's more a sort of negative case than a positive case. They have no particular reason to carry out global terrorism when they have a lot of domestic competitors still in play, warlords, tribal traditional groups, and of course, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. So then that leads me to my next question, too. Does the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan mean an increase in terror within its own borders? It wasn't like Afghanistan was a peaceful and safe environment at any point in the last 40 or 50 years. It's been an environment in which violence is endemic, in which political violence had its own logic. Uh, The winners in politics tended to be those who were willing to be more ruthless than the losers. How was the Taliban able to take power so quickly? And what does this mean for citizens living within the country, particularly women? This is a bad thing for anybody in Afghanistan who believes in anything vaguely approaching civil liberties. They clearly have supporters, and those supporters are going to be happy about this. But many of the people who who saw progressive elements in Afghan politics and culture as as a positive thing, are in trouble, not unlike happened in Vietnam in the 1970s. You know, the United States has spent 20 years fighting the Taliban, and now that we've pulled out, how will this affect the geopolitical situation in the region? That's where America gets lucky. American foreign policy is a litany of mistakes. It's also a record of happy outcomes, or at least successful outcomes for the United States. The U.S. lost the war in Vietnam And Vietnam and China immediately turned around and carried out a war that many people don't know about, but in which the Chinese probably lost more casualties than the Americans did in 25 years of fighting. Today, the Vietnamese are sidling up to the United States and trying to be good friends because they're more concerned about their local threats than they are about distant adversaries like the United States. And I think that's probably a story we could tell about Afghanistan too. It's too soon for the Taliban and the US to make up, but the logic of the situation is such that Afghanistan or the Taliban 
Taliban's adversaries, the worst adversaries, the ones that are nearby, are also adversaries for the United States, like I said, like China and Russia. And that opens a window of opportunity that in the long run, the US can have a, a reasonable arm's length relationship with this new government that doesn't agree with U.S. politics and philosophy in many other ways. Also, American troops have spent the past two decades training Afghan soldiers and providing resources to them. Based on what we're seeing happen in Afghanistan now, how might that training be used? And could that training be used against uh, the U.S.? Well, the short answer is yes. But in practical terms, there are very few opportunities. The United States has the blessing and curse of distance. In a recent publication, one of my graduate students and I showed that one of the best predictors of U.S. failure in military adventures was the number of miles between Washington, D.C. and the place that they were fighting. Well, obviously, Afghanistan is very far from Washington. And that means that it's very hard for the United States to win in a place like Afghanistan. But it's also very hard for anybody in Afghanistan to do anything very serious to thwart U.S. interests in other places. They simply lack the resources and capabilities to do so. Afghanistan doesn't have an aircraft carrier. Do you think it's at all naive to think that the turmoil we're leaving in Afghanistan could not end up at the doorstep of America? Well, America's doorstep is very far away. There's no question that the turmoil and instability is going to cause problems. They're going to cause problems like throwing a rock in a pond. You get eddies and waves, and those eddies are going to hit the closest things first. And the closest things to Afghanistan are not America. They're not even things that the U.S. cares particularly much about. They're places like the interior of Asia, the far southern portions of Russia, the Caucasus and Pakistan, all places where the U.S. hasn't got the same amount of purchase and interest as it has in other places. Does the U.S. currently face then more of a threat from foreign or domestic terrorism? I think the appropriate way to think about this is it depends on who you are. Just like we think of a depression is when you lose your job and a recession is when your neighbor loses their job. Domestic terrorism is a very serious issue, but almost certainly it's one that's of greater focus for the targets of domestic terrorism and their partners and friends and so on. For the most part, that problem is one that's occurred at a lower level. It hasn't been treated as and hasn't been perceived as as a national security problem, in part because of the separation of the military and civil affairs. We try to keep the U.S. military out of domestic politics. But that being said, I think, for example, the Biden administration is treating right-wing domestic terrorism, organized terrorism, neo-fascist uh, groups, and so on, much more seriously. And I suspect in the coming years, we'll see a number of uh, high-profile cases in which domestic law enforcement arrests and, and ultimately convicts folks that are engaged in those horrible activities. I've been speaking with Eric Gardsky, a political scientist and the founding director of the Center for Peace and Security Studies at UCSD. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. As heat waves, fires, floods, and melting ice sheets become everyday items in the news, there's little doubt that climate change is a part of our lives. 
but often it seems there's not much we can do about it. Now, a first-in-the-nation program in California is focused on bringing climate change solutions to some of the state's most vulnerable communities. The state has offered some 200 fellowships for a two-month summer of service in urban and rural communities throughout the state, including here in San Diego. As part of our KPBS Climate Change Desk coverage, let me welcome California Chief Service Officer Josh Friday, who heads the group California Volunteers. And Josh, hello. Hello. And Alex Richter, a California Climate Action Corps fellow based in San Diego. And Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Josh, there are currently many volunteer programs designed to help the environment. What makes the Climate Action Corps a first-in-the-nation program? This is the first time we have a state leader with uh, Governor Newsom saying we are going to empower people at all levels to take climate action. We are going to call on every Californian to be part of the solution, and we're going to invest the resources to create an entire core of people who are going to be given a stipend and a scholarship for college and the opportunity to spend, whether it's a semester or a year uh, or a summer, dedicated to taking climate action, dedicated to organizing communities. And we're going to be calling on every Californian to volunteer and to take action in their homes and in their neighborhoods to be part of the solution. Josh, how would you describe the Climate Action Corps? The Climate Action Corps uh, is a uh, first in the nation program to essentially engage every single one of the, uh, our citizens and residents of California to take actual meaningful climate change. You know, we, as I go around the state, that often the most regular question that I get is, what can I do? People want to be part of the solution. People are passionate about this issue, but they want to know what they can do. And so the California Climate Action Corps seeks to make sure that no one asks that question again that everyone from fellows who are willing to commit a summer or semester or a year to serve to those who simply have an hour or want to do something at home know how they can take climate action in their community. Yeah, what's the purpose of granting fellowships instead of just accepting volunteers? Well, the purpose is if we're really going to tackle this crisis, uh, we need to create opportunities to harness the passion and the energy of the power of people like Alex Richter, who's uh, with us today. Uh, some people who want to tackle this issue have want to use their time and their talents uh, to take on what is really an existential threat to all of our communities. And so we need to give people at all levels the opportunity to engage, uh, whether, again, you have a summer or semester or a year or an hour. So in, on top of volunteers, we want to make sure that our fellows can uh, actually be paid, can receive a scholarship for college uh, if they're heading to school. Uh, and can have the time to apply their passion and their skills to tackling this crisis. Alex, why did you want to become a fellow of the Climate Action Corps? Well, uh, I, I'm, since I'm a recent graduate uh, from SDSU in environmental sciences, I had the idea since my like junior year that I really wanted to be a part of something bigger than myself. And I think the California Climate Action Corps provides a great opportunity to actually put these ideas, all these ideas I've been learning about climate change, and actually do something about it. Alex, what's your assignment during this two-month summer of service? So I have been working uh, for the past few weeks with the nonprofit uh, Casa Familiar down in uh, San Isidro. And throughout this program, we're going to be developing a community outreach uh, program which seeks to give residents the opportunity 
to actually help themselves uh, with several opportunities uh, improving their environmental health, including uh, giving them the chance for a free tree, uh, giving them the opportunity to install an air quality monitor in their house as uh, air quality is a huge issue in San Isidro, as well as uh, advocating for the issues that uh, Casa Familiar is familiar with. And how does that mitigate climate change, Alex? Well, uh, urban greening is actually a huge, huge issue uh, in terms of the different communities that are around, even just San Diego. You can definitely tell there's a noticeable difference in the communities that are downtown. You see a bunch of trees. And then you kind of go to the other communities and there's not as many. Alex, how does planting trees in a particular community, how does that mitigate climate change or help to mitigate climate change? Well, as many people know, uh, trees take in carbon dioxide and release oxygen for many people to breathe. And for the past 200 years, climate change has accelerated to an unprecedented rate as a result of increased carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. So what we hope to do is uh, plant these trees in the neighborhood. Uh, These trees will uh, take in more CO2 and release more oxygen, making the environment more breathable. Now, Josh, give us an idea of the other types of projects the Climate Action Corps will be taking on across the state. We have fellows across the state doing a variety of programs necessary to help us reduce greenhouse gases. And this includes food rescue programs to recover edible food that would otherwise be disposed of from producers and restaurants, grocery stores and households. And what we've learned and what we know is, is that food waste that ends up in landfills is a significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. We also have fellows that are working on fire mitigation work and protecting our communities from fire, something in California we're all very familiar with. We have fellows that are uh, doing home hardening and defensible space to protect, protect high-risk neighborhoods. And this allows them to reduce the toxic wildfire-related air pollution that comes from these fires. And and on top of that, we are working on a variety of urban green programs, urban farming programs, empowering people uh, to understand how to reduce their energy. So there's really a variety of activities. And the point is, is that everyone can do something to be part of the solution. And we want to give you the tools and the education to be able to do that. And Josh, how many Climate Action Corps projects are here in San Diego? Right now, we have uh, roughly 17 fellows, including Alex, uh, in San Diego, and we very much view this as just the start. This is a pilot program here in California. It's something Governor Newsom uh, was very excited and passionate about launching, Uh, and now we're even excited to see that President Biden has taken notice and is talking about creating a a federal civilian climate corps. Uh, And so we hope that we continue to grow in San Diego and beyond. This is just the beginning. Now, Josh, so is it the hope that California's Climate Action Corps becomes something like the Peace Corps or AmeriCorps? The Climate Action Corps actually is uh, an AmeriCorps program. AmeriCorps runs through our office, and so we we work with AmeriCorps uh, to to make this. But yes, the idea is, is that we're scaling opportunities for people to come together from all different backgrounds and work together in California to address climate change. And we hope that we can create the opportunity for people to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, that they're uh, part of a, a, a community of people who want to take action and have the ability to actually do that. Now, Alex, last week, the UN report on climate change painted a really pretty grim picture for the future of the planet. 
Do dire predictions like that make you feel like you may, might be fighting an uphill battle against climate change? Well, uh, I'm going to be honest, for a while, I was kind of stuck in that mindset. But uh, as I kind of advanced my educational career and my uh, actual career in joining the California Climate Action Corps, they actually inspired uh, some hope in me. I think when people ask, uh, what are you, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of climate change? Most of the answers are unfortunately not solutions. And I think what the Climate Action Corps is doing a great job of doing is getting people more focused on the solutions rather than the problems. I've been speaking with Alex Richter, a California Climate Action Corps fellow based right here in San Diego, and with California Chief Service Officer Josh Friday. Thank you both for speaking with me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This fall, the UC San Diego campus will be full of students for the first time in more than a year. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says school officials hope a unique robotic tool that taps into the school's sewage system will help contain COVID outbreaks. The robots are about the size of an upside-down 10-gallon bucket. Think of a small R2-D2 unit without wheels. Take off the first lid, and there's a simple computer that can schedule samples throughout the day. The half-inch rubber tube on the side of the device runs into the manhole cover, then directly into a sewer line. Take the second lid off, and you see a plastic water bottle where the samples are collected. Postdoctoral researcher Smruthi Karthikeyan says there are more than 120 of these robots quietly doing the dirty work in the battle against the pandemic on the UCSD campus. So it keeps taking these samples over a 24-hour period. So when we pick up the sample the next day, it's a representative of the entire day and not just the moment we're grabbing samples. Samples are brought to the Biological Services Building every day. I am scanning in the bottles after they've been collected by their QR codes. And those automatically come up on our Google Docs. Lab technician Caitlin Tribblehorn identifies where the samples come from and then prepares the contents for processing. The sewage water in the bottle is concentrated and prepared for analysis. The system has evolved since it was first deployed last summer, and that's important because pretty soon the campus will be crowded. This testing system is expected to be an important tool in the battle against COVID. 
It will be because every day we're making developments on um, increasing the number of samples and we are focusing on that every time we discuss ways to make it better. Sample collection and testing is only the beginning. Results are put into the UC San Diego COVID-19 daily dashboard. The pandemic's impact is tracked there, including how many people on campus have had infections in the past week. And the sewage testing data is shared there as well. We have an interactive map with all these buildings, um, which get updated every day. So if you see a blue, it means that building did not have a wastewater positive signal. If it was red, it means that we did see a positive signal from wastewater that day. The building occupants are typically notified and encouraged to get tested if a sample tests positive for the virus. And because the data is uploaded once a day, the history for more than 350 buildings can be tracked. We can see if it was one infected individual in the building infecting the other people, or they all picked up their inf you know, infection somewhere else and brought it back to campus. Rob Knight is the director of the Center for Microbiome Innovation at UCSD. He helped set up the system because he and other researchers realized early on that COVID-19 was being transmitted before people showed outward symptoms. We think of COVID as infecting our lungs and our airways, but it also infects our gut. And for many people, it infects the gut before it infects the respiratory system. So you can be pooping COVID into the sewage uh, long before you show up uh, at a hospital with respiratory symptoms. Early testing last summer led to the discovery of infections on campus in people that didn't realize they had the disease. Because of the way the UCSD sewer system works, positive samples can be linked to specific buildings. An early warning provided by the sewage test can be invaluable when the full campus population returns for the first time in more than a year. Even if you're vaccinated, you can still get infected and you can still infect other people. And so uh, keeping, keeping our astonishing success record with cases low on campus is going to require continuing to be extremely vigilant. A recent study by Kartha Kayan and Knight found that 85% of COVID-19 cases on campus were detected early by the sewage testing system. That makes it a crucial tool to control outbreaks once the students return to campus next month. Joining me is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. So the sewage monitoring system can snake into a sewer line and then determine which building the sewage is coming from? How does it do that? Well, it's as simple as finding where the line comes from. Each building has a sewage line that comes out of it. Uh, you find the junction point. You make sure that uh, what you're testing, that sewage, whatever's moving through that particular pipe is coming from a particular building, and then you can make the determination of where that sewage comes from. Now, that's what they do on the campus, uh, but you can also do the very same thing in, say, a high-rise building. Um, you could tap into the sewer line at, say, on the fifth floor, and you know that all the sewage that comes down that main sewer line is from above the fifth floor, if that may be the case. Um, if you have multiple sewer lines, you could track it that way, and that would help you pinpoint uh, the origin of the sewage that you are testing. Now, this sewage monitoring system has been successful during a time when there are relatively few students on the UC San Diego campus. So how will it have to be ramped up when more students return? Well, just to give you an idea, when they first put this system into place, uh, I think it was last fall, uh, you know, they conceived of it over the summer, they put it in place last fall. 
the campus population was about 10,000 students, which is well below what they would normally have on a full campus. And since that time, what they've been doing is tweaking their processes, tweaking their, their uh, analysis of the samples that they've taken, all with the idea that they're getting ready for uh, dealing with a full campus. Now, they've pinpointed, uh, been a little bit more specific with some of the location sampling so they can identify uh, uh, buildings more at a more granular level. And, and they've also refined the way that they test the samples that they take. So, um, for example, they didn't used to test for different variants, and now that's part of the process. So once they get a sample into the laboratory, they'll concentrate it and, and they'll test it for uh, not only COVID uh, positive tests, but also for which variant is prevalent in that sample. Now, you say the school's robot monitoring system is sophisticated, and it sounds sophisticated, but my question is how sophisticated? Is this new technology? Actually, uh, when I say sophisticated, I mean it's a big system, right? So um, it, it, it involves uh, more than 300 buildings. Uh, there, there are dozens of these devices around the campus. But the technology itself is actually not new. It's something that wastewater systems, uh, wastewater plants have used uh, for, for many, many years to, to you know, routinely and automatically test the water that they're processing. So um, it's not terribly expensive. Um, you can't, of course, go into a hardware store and buy these systems. Uh, you kind of have to build them a little bit, but uh, it's not terribly expensive. Uh, uh, the sophistication, I think, comes in the, the organization and the testing of the data. Now, you say when COVID is detected in the sewage from one dorm building, the students are encouraged to get a COVID test. That doesn't seem like a very strong response from the school. Shouldn't they be quarantined or something? I, I think what they want to do is they want to identify where that case is. That's the, th the feeling behind it. They're, people in that building where they have a positive test uh, are notified that there was a positive test in the building, and they're asking them to get tested. One thing that you should remember when students come back to campus this fall, which is just in a couple of weeks, those students will be required to be vaccinated. Uh, but they are not the only people on campus. There are also workers on campus as well who are going to be having this vaccination requirement. So if there is an outbreak, um, it's kind of in that uh, backdrop of uh, a lot of the people on the campus already vaccinated. So um, it might lead you to a, a breakthrough uh, infection. It might lead you to uh, perhaps catching uh, a variant infection that, that might not be detectable yet. So um, and I think they also are, as they have been doing in the last nine months, constantly tweaking the system uh, with the idea that once you get the full student population on campus, you want to be as efficient uh, as possible with getting the warning out that there is uh, COVID on campus. And it sounds like there are applications for this robot monitoring system for the larger community. Yeah, uh, if you're in a high-rise building, and it's something we mentioned uh, earlier, if you're in a high-rise building, absolutely, you can test the sewage that's being generated there, and you might be able to uh, locate where an infection would be in a building like that. They are working with uh, elementary and public schools uh, to combine not only uh, sewage testing, but 
also surface testing so that they can get that early identification. And I think in those settings, it's critically important because uh, those students don't have access to the vaccine yet. So uh, you want to make sure that you're as safe as possible uh, in a school type setting. And they're working with other universities as well to help them set up uh, a system like this. I believe um, San Diego State University will soon have uh, one uh, like that uh, on the campus so that they can do very much the same thing that UCSD is doing, which is uh, track any outbreaks of COVID. I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thank you. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. In the first in a series of conversations about this year's Latinx New Play Festival, KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with playwright Daniela de Jesus. Her play, Get Your Pink Hands Off Me, Sucka, and Give Me Back, will premiere in a staged reading early next month. The festival is put on by the San Diego Rep and will take place online and in person. Here's that interview. Daniela, you are part of the San Diego Rep's Latinx Playwright Project, and you have a play called Get Your Pink Hands Off Me, Sucka, and Give Me Back, FKA the Columbus Play. So what inspired you to write this? It's, uh, it's a lot of things. I, um, I started writing the play in 2014, and I'm um, from Bushwick, and I was thinking and writing a lot about the gentrification of Bushwick at the time. Um, so that was one of the inspirations for the play. I also studied abroad in Spain that summer, which was a trippy experience for me. It was the, the first time I was confronted with like overt racism and West Side Story also serves as a source of inspiration. Disney's Pocahontas, of course, and the problems within that as well as, um, I remember there's this moment in um, like the sixth grade when I was learning about the colonization of the Caribbean and the Americas and learning how old Pocahontas probably actually was, that she was like between the ages of 11 and 14. And me realizing that, oh, I'm 11. And there's no way that me having a romantic relationship with a 30-year-old man is okay. Like, that's messed up. So it also comes from, like, that moment of, I don't even know what to call it, but that moment I had with myself in, in the sixth grade. And why did you want to transport your characters to a historical time frame? Well, I wonder, I mean, this is something I experience a lot, and I wonder if it's, like, sort of a universal experience for people of color. 
But often while experiencing a microaggression or outright racism, I have a moment where I feel my perspective kind of like zooming in and out like a camera focusing. And it, I think about like the structure and history that brought us to that moment. For example, there's this scene, the first scene of the play takes place in a museum. And this, you know, the main character or one of the main characters, Solandra, she's confronted with this uh, stained glass portrait of Columbus and the Spaniards colonizing the Caribbean. And I had a moment similar to that when I was studying abroad, when I visited when I visited the same throne room where I saw the the two thrones that I'd seen in history books and had this kind of like out of body experience where it was just like, I don't know, just like that camera focusing feeling. And and so I was like, okay, how do I translate this to a play? And so in that scene, the portraits of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand come to life and kind of terrorize uh, Solandra. But I also think that like, while this half of the play takes place in 1492, the events of the play still happen today. Like they're happening all over the world right now. Like Native American women and girls continue to be kidnapped. Israel continues to colonize Palestine. Pipelines like line, line three continue to be built or expanded, endangering the environment and violating treaty rights of indigenous nations. And so for me, it's kind of like a reckoning with how colonization is still happening in the exact same way that it started. And talk a little bit about the inspiration for the title of your play and what made you decide on this. So the play for a long time was called Columbus Play. And I had some issues with the title of the play because I was like, I don't want to center Columbus as, I don't want people to think of Columbus as the main character. And so I was like, well, what is the story really about? Um, and I think it's, it's more about the insidiousness of colonization and a rejection or an attempt to reject that while also reckoning with your own part in it. And the title is inspired by a quote from Azalea Banks in an interview she gave um, where she was quoting her mother. And your play works through kind of dual narratives, like two uh, strands of plot. What appealed to you about creating that kind of a structure? Well, I'm really interested in um, generational and genetic trauma or the idea of generational curses the idea that trauma that happened to an ancestor three, four, five, or more generations ago can manifest as an anxiety attack or a particular insecurity is really interesting to me. And I like to think that because of that, in a way that history is is always happening, like it's not in the past, it like reverbs through what we're experiencing right now. I find myself thinking a lot about how history has informed everything that I do. Um, and so, yeah, that's what inspired the the dual narratives. And how would you describe the tone of the play? Because you use humor in it. And I think that's always a good tool to kind of get people to open up to other ideas and to possibly changing their way of thinking. I describe it as a dark comedy. Comedy is really important to me. I, I think... For me, there's always, and there's always been a relationship between darkness or tragedy and laughter to me. Like, um, I think part of it is like the way I grew up, like my family just 
makes light of a lot of heavy situations. And I think it's it's a little bit like, you know, you laugh to keep from crying. It's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down. I think people will be more receptive to what I have to say if it's told with humor. I also think that like the audience's reaction or the audience's laughter is kind of the the score of the play for me. And like, I think, you know, someone's laughter tells you a lot about them. What they laugh at tells you a lot about them. A person's sense of humor reveals a lot. And how does it feel to be a part of a Latinx playwright series? It's interesting. I, my, I, I don't know. My relationship to the Latinx community is kind of um, complicated because um, I identify as Afro-Latinx. So I often feel like our stories are pushed to the side. But I appreciate that in this instance, my voice was included and that my work resonates with other Latinx people. And what role do you think theater can play in provoking change or at the very least getting people to try and look at the world through kind of different lenses? Well, I think anything that we see or consume in, in media or literature shapes who we see as people and, and who we see as like full humans. And I also think like, if you can't see something, you can't imagine it. And so in that way, I think theater helps to, to help us see each other as more human. That was playwright Daniela de Jesus speaking with KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando. The Latinx New Play Festival will take place in person and online September 3rd through the 5th. A summertime anthem about Southeast San Diego was released earlier this year. It's called Southeast Summers. It's a feel-good collaboration between homegrown artist Ryan Anthony, Mitchie Slick, and Andrew Day. From lowrider cars to roller skates, the song highlights the Southeast vibe. Ryan Anthony joined us back in March to talk about the song. Here's that interview. How did you, Mitchie, and Andrew uh, connect for this collaboration? So me and Mitch, we have a we have a... That's that's the big homie. That's OG San Diego legend. That's my guy. Andrew Day, the homie Nate, he went to one of her concerts in San Diego. It was probably like 2015. And he got backstage and he sent me a video and she gave me a shout out. She was like, I really love Barely See the Beach, Ryan Anthony. I love you. I love you. And I was just like, oh, I didn't even know she knew about me. So then I reached out to her then and I was just like, you know, thank you. You know, hopefully we could work, you know, in the in the future. In the song, you shout out Southeast neighborhoods like Skyline and Logan Heights. Tell me about the Southeast vibe you, you all portrayed in the song and in the video. You know, what makes Southeast San Diego, Southeast San Diego, especially during the summertime? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the people, it's the weather, it's the, the backyard barbecues, it's the, the car hops, it's the... You know, even the beach, the beach parties, it's uh, it, it's just it's always been a vibe. Summer in San Diego has always been a vibe. You know, when the sun come out, everybody come out and, you know, it's just a, it's like a party all the time. And it's connecting, connecting with your loved ones and, and just enjoying each other. And, and I know you grew up in Spring Valley. Um, how are your experiences reflected in this project? 
the project that the Southeast Summers is on is called Barely See the Beach Three. So this uh it's like my trilogy of it's called Barely See the Beach. That's my brand. And uh ever since the first one, I've just always talked about my experiences in San Diego, growing up in San Diego, maneuvering through, you know, because there are negative aspects within Southeast San Diego that a lot of people are familiar with, but it's just showing people how to maneuver through and still having a positive mindset about it and not falling victim to, you know, those obstacles that are thrown in, in my way. So I just, I always talk about the positive sides of things, even though there is negativity, I always talk about the positive. Yeah. And and I want to ask you about that positive. You know, you mentioned it, it is important to invoke positive feelings about growing up in these communities. Talk to me more about that. Look at when we're growing up, how they portray like African countries, right? We have this, they put this picture in our mind that everybody over there is poor. Everybody over there is dirty. Everybody over there needs 25 cents a day to live. And it's not like that. And, and I mean, there probably are places within that, but the, you can't to group a whole people that that's how that entire continent is. You know, it's a crazy perception to put onto an entire group of people. And I feel like when you're in inner cities, they do the same exact thing. I think I feel like it's in any inner city across America or across the world. They put the negativity, that negative cloud over that inner city and they only want to show the negative stuff. So it's like if you, anytime you hear about Spring Valley, Southeast National City on, on TV, somebody is a victim to something. So I like to bring the, okay, there are those things going on. Yeah. But check out all this other positive stuff going on. Look at all these kids that are trying to, you know, improve their life and do better and, and progress our, our community as a whole. So I just, I just like to shine that, that positivity on us. And, and Ryan, I, I know I follow you on Instagram and you're always out serving the community. Um, why is it so important to give of your time and talents like that? Um, this community raised me. I am who I am because of this community. And I just, I, I love, I love to give back. I love to be outside with the, with the people. And I don't ever feel like it's a, I'm helping somebody that need it. Or it's like, you know, these people don't have, so I'm giving it to them. It's just, these are my people. Like, this is my family. This is, it's, it's everything. It's my house. It's my house. You got to take care of your house. Hey, and, and I know this song is specific to Southeast San Diego, but I imagine many neighborhoods all across the country will relate to it. How do you feel about that? If it, it feels good, I got a, my little cousin, he lives in Washington. And he called me and he was so high. He was like, they played your song on the radio out here in Washington. I was like, yo, what? That's wild. And it was just, it was crazy. Seeing how excited he was about it, it made me, you know, I was excited too, but it, just seeing his excitement made me real happy. So it's, it's been real dope seeing it spread. That was Ryan Anthony speaking about his song, Southeast Summers. When 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. <laughs>